financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with industry veterans Michael Hartsman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartsman. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman. Today is Tuesday, June 6th, 2023. And after a few weeks break, we're back with Dominic Tavella, my partner and host. How are you, Dominic? Uh, doing well, Mike. A uh, little little health issues over the last couple of days, but uh, we're past them and uh, feeling good today. Thanks for my, asking. My voice got got um, got beat up a little bit myself fighting a respiratory thing, um, but but here we are back and better than ever, and um, we got a lot to talk about tonight, Dom. History will show that we both thought that the debt ceiling would be resolved on time, probably at the very last second. But I think both of us were pleasantly surprised that it was resolved, which with much less drama and aggravation and stress than we anticipated. Uh, I think you're spot on, Mike. Uh, we both felt comfortable with the idea that they were not going to allow both, whether we're talking about the Republicans, the Democrats, the White House, no one was going to allow the U.S. to default on its debt. We really did not buy into that threat whatsoever. On the other hand, we did expect a lot of drama and a lot of fear mongering and fist pumping and all the other things that uh, our uh, beloved politicians claim they need to do to justify their jobs. Um, but there was a lot less than that than expected. And uh, as you said, a lot less drama. And at the end, they came up with a compromise. And we can argue whether it was a good one or a bad one, Mike, but a compromise with no default in my book is a good one. So Dominic, I didn't read it. So full disclosure, I honestly have no idea what's in it other than the headlines. But if the loud voices on the left and the loud voices on the right, the far left and the far right, are both upset, then I have to assume it was a very good compromise. Um, and again, we can debate what uh, the compromise was and how good it was, but it was a compromise. And we can go back to the days of when Tip O'Neill would sit down with Ronald Reagan when Newt Gingrich would sit down with Bill Clinton, uh, where Democrats would sit down with Republicans and vice versa. And no one gets 100% of what they want, but they get some of what they want and give up some things. That's the definition of a compromise. And that's the way government is supposed to work. Um, so this time, hopefully they continue with the Kumbaya, but this time it worked. Um, risk averted and now we can go back and focus on the economy and the markets and the federal reserve and all the other things that keeps up, up keeps us up at night you're right you're right but to your point those things have also settled into a, a relatively calm routine now we 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 were talking all year about about when the fed will stop raising interest rates and they're definitely on hold for now Inflation is definitely coming down bit by bit, month by month. The unemployment numbers are staying 
relatively strong, getting a little weak, but not mass destruction. The banking thing seems to have settled in and calmed down. And, you know, we had Republic was the last one that went out. But again, they were part of the original story. So I don't know, Dom, I'm kind of feeling like the last 18 months, all the things we're worried about in the rearview mirror, if nothing new pops up, a lot of that seems to being resolved or resolving itself. Uh, and I would probably, Mike, vote for resolving itself mm -hmm. uh, in that, look, uh, there's still storm clouds out there, right? Yeah. We can get into the minutiae talk about credit card debt at an all-time high, car loans, uh, people are starting to be late on their payments. There, there are cracks, right? And I call it the big storm out there in the middle of the ocean. Um, we know the storm is there, right? But we don't know... Uh, will it weaken and disappear? Will it intensify and head in our direction? We don't know the particulars yet. And a lot of this needs to kind of go through the mill. Um, but at least for now, some of the worst storm clouds that could have happened and or that some of the experts have been calling for haven't happened just yet, Mike. The economy is not falling off the cliff. It's not. So, Dom, all the things you worried about, and you're 100% right, and they're all real and valid and things we have to keep an eye on. But, Dominic, that just makes it a Tuesday, right? Th that just – because when there's nothing to worry about, the market worries about there's nothing to worry about. Yeah. I think we've both been there where we go, well, things are just too good, so something bad has to happen, right? right. Um, I think we're actually in the mode that – Things are not that good, and I think people are looking more. The glass is half empty. I saw one stat that high net worth worth people have in excess of a third of their money sitting in money market and cash. They're afraid, and again, this is that storm cloud out in the ocean. But we've we've overcome a lot of these unknowns, and as we go through the rest of this year, I think we'll prove that although it won't be a perfect weather day, it may not be as horrific as some people claim it's going to be. I agree, and we we don't have time tonight. Maybe we'll do it on our next show. Talk about a potential recession, but but let's talk about the rebound in 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 the tech sector. Um, or really, let's talk about how things have reached out. The deck has been reshuffled. Last year, energy was up about, I don't remember, 25 or 30%. Tech stocks were down 35%. Guess what? They've changed places. Big shocker, right? So now this year, tech is up 36% since last Friday. And energy is the weakest sector. Thank God, not down 30%, but down almost 8 So... So we are also getting that rotation we expected. And all those stocks a year ago that got really beat up, you know, they're coming back into fashion. Yeah, and, and Mike, I, I think it's part of, of what we were just talking about that, you know, if you have fear uh, that we are going to go into a recession, maybe a deep recession, then think about that people will be driving less, people are going to lose their jobs, they're going to go on airplanes less, they're going to go out to dinner less. <laughs> So companies, whether it's energy companies, uh, whether it's a Home Depot, whether these companies are going to be looked upon of, well, they're not going to make any money because the consumer isn't going to spend any money. So in anticipation of this storm, uh, some of these sectors, many of these sectors have gotten beat up pretty good, even though it looks like the overall market is doing well. 
if we don't have this recession or this deep recession, I think those companies recover and gain back a lot of the thing, the losses they've gotten so far. Um, but I think the market itself overall is still thinking that we might have some economic problems later in the year. But tech has been one of the glowing recovery stories this year. Oh, my God. And, and that is so it's two things, right? It's recovering from its lows and there's an appetite for risk. And one thing that we haven't talked about all year that suddenly came into bloom in the last two, three weeks is AI, artificial intelligence. And 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 that's become a hot topic. And that's also carried, check this last leg up. And you can argue, Mike, that some of the biggest performers this year, the NVIDIAs, the Microsofts, even Apple, um, it's because of this risk on and how these companies are going to be able to profit using artificial intelligence. And you and I have been in the business long enough to know, Mike, these things sometimes sometime take decades to evolve. We don't think this one's going to take as long, but it won't happen overnight. And I think we have a great expert tonight to help us with that discussion. We do. Uh, good segue. Um, we have Nate Hilger, who actually has a, a bachelor's degree in economics from Stanford University and a PhD from Harvard. So, um, uh, you know, great Definitely guy. smarter than me, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> me too, combined. Extremely well-educated, extremely well-spoken. He's actually author of a book called The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. And he really has an interesting point of view on that because, yes, it's about big government, but there's also ways that, you know, people on both sides of the aisle could embrace some of these ideas. Um, so we're looking forward to his thoughts. So we will be right back with Nate Hilger, author of The Parent Trap. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Symbol L-E-G-A-X. Le tax. Rates on cash are already so low. Why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn. It's what you keep. The Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities, the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. 
After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you have any questions or comments, please send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with my partner, Dominic Tavella, with our guest this evening, Nate Hilger, author of The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. Welcome aboard, Nate. Thanks very much. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for joining us, Nate. So, Nate, when when I, when I read the intro of the book, math tutor, healthcare advocate, college guidance counselor, nutrition coach, I think you probably left out about twenty other job responsibilities. <laughs> yeah, and and I just heard you say to Dom, you're on parental leave. So, Mazel Tov, and 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 did you write this book as your own blueprint, or what motivated you? to write about this topic? It was really strange, actually. I, I wrote this book before I became a, a dad. I, I now have two kids as of like last week. Um, and I wrote, I was kind of wrapping up most of the book when I gave birth to my first kid a few couple years ago. Um, so I was trying to kind of emp- make sure I wasn't missing any key empathy for parents, you know, because it was it's really weird to write a parenting book without being a parent yourself. Um, I wrote it because I'm kind of, interested in inequality and inequality of opportunity and parenting seemed to be like at the the center of that debate in ways that I didn't think people were, were really appreciating. Um, but it turned out to writing the book did, it did shape my approach to parenting after the fact. So Nate, in, in, and we're going to go in a lot of different directions tonight, but I remember, you know, uh, like it happened yesterday, but when my first child was born. And then when my first grandchild was born, there's a scary thought. Um, it does change your perspective about life. It does change your whole perspective about uh, financially where you need to stand and that what you need to think about going forward. Uh, how, how did you kind of look at yourself in the mirror financially and going, oh my God, I, I want to have all these things I'm going to be responsible for. How did that change your perspective? Um, it made me less willing to write a second book. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I can afford to write another book, man. I have these two kids and I live in a really expensive um, part of the country in uh, the Bay Area. And um, man, yeah, it really, it made me, it forced me to take a lot more interest in things that I consider, no no offense to you guys, but things that I consider profoundly boring. (laughs) You know, like we just- we just put, I mean, it's such important work that you guys do, but, you know, we just put all this time into figuring out how to get a life insurance policy. I can't think of a less punk rock, less interesting way to spend my time thinking about details of these stupid policies. But, you know, you love these kids so much and you don't want them to suffer and you want to, like, make sure you're you're getting your ducks in order. So it did force me to be a little bit more of an adult like it does for most people so real quick 
rather than trying to get into the minutiae of the policies, find his advisor you trust, make, make sure he's not BSing you, and take his advice. That's my two cents on life insurance. Okay, okay. Good to know. Yeah, I, I did that. I feel pretty good about the, the decision. I had a friend who has looked into it more than me, and we, we did a very simple thing with no bells and whistles. There you um, go. So I think, it's, I think it's okay. There you go. Just so, uh, philosophically, Nate, I, I look at it as uh, if everybody thought it was easy, then we wouldn't have a job. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful that yeah. uh, our brilliant doctors and lawyers and carpenters and every other kind of trade on the planet, uh, and they let us do our job. So I let them do their job, and they let us do our job, and everybody's happy. Everybody kind of walks away happy. Yeah. So Nate, you, you know, you, you also talked about as a background, all the different trade groups that exist to do support, you know, whether it's a union, whether it's older people, the pharmaceutical industry, the real estate industry. Yeah. How did you convince, because we talked about, you know, getting a book published is not easy. It has to be a topic that obviously a publisher thinks people will want to read about and get interested in. How did you even convince a publisher that writing a book about creating an even bigger government? Yeah. going to be something that would gain some traction well i think there there have been some major innovations in research mm -hmm. on the origins of human wealth over the last 20 years because these big data sets have become available that econ economists and other sociologists and other social science researchers are getting to to use to really study the impact of childhood opportunities on not just, you know, your little test score or, you know, your attendance and educational outcomes, but how much money you make when you're an adult and putting those things, and not just money, you know, I have in the book, I focus on the impact of childhood opportunity on, on how much money you make, but money is kind of a proxy for, for well-being. And it, these studies have found big impacts of childhood opportunity on health and on, um, you know, well, self-reported happiness and you know stuff that everybody cares about these outcomes and even if you're you are not a materialistic person per se um but i think the story of that research is that we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot as a country by not making it a lot easier for more families to invest heavily in their kids in in helping them build the skills that they will need to thrive as adults and have good careers um so uh, I think a publisher was just amenable to the idea that the evidence on this topic has changed and people really might want to consider changing their minds about what government is capable of doing, given that we know we're leaving so much potential on the table. It's not, you know, I think people used to worry that all these government programs have failed and that's just not true. We now know. We go back and look at the data. We connect it to kids' long-term outcomes. We use really great statistical techniques and we find that a lot of these programs, you know, almost, you know, partially or fully pay for themselves in terms of generating higher incomes and higher tax revenue that pays taxpayers back for their original investments in these children. So I think there was just an appetite that there was, there was some belief that this kind of message could resonate more broadly. So Nate, we, we started the show talking about how basically both sides of the aisle came together along with the White House to come to this agreement. And I think it's pretty fair to say that both Republicans and Democrats can agree that educating our children is probably the most intelligent, cost-effective way 
to have long-term success and long-term growth in this in this economy and in this country, right? Education's been the foundation. And education doesn't necessarily mean going to Harvard. It could be going to a trade school. We don't have enough kids going to trade school. So why don't we focus a little bit on how the government can help our youth, our children, uh, in a in a more constructive way? Great. So I, I agree with you that there's a lot of room for bipartisan uh, agreement on the value of investing in kids. And in fact, a lot of red states have been leaders in this area in terms of early childhood investments. Um, what I advocate for in the book is a, a kind of New Deal style program. I call it family care, and it's it's modeled on Medicare. Medicare is an expensive program because it solves a really big, complicated problem, which is that older folks need health care. And People can't afford that on their own dollar. You know, regular people can't get good cancer treatment. Regular people can't get good surgery if we ask people to finance this out of their own private resources. So that's what Medicare is helping to address. It's leveling the playing field to solve that big problem, and it's expensive. And I think I'm trying to change attitudes to help people realize that we can solve another big complicated problem, which is child skill development with an investment of a similar magnitude, not anywhere, not as big as Medicare because Medi Medicare is too expensive. And we're going to have to save money on Medicare over time somehow, but about half as much money as we currently spend on Medicare would massively, massively level the playing field between rich kids and poor kids in our country by helping poor kids fill in all the gaps outside of our current public K-12 education system. People don't realize this, but the public education system we have today really accounts for a very small share of kids' skill development. Skills are accumulated in time, and only about 10% of the hours that kids have available to build skills between birth and age 18 are accounted for by our K-12 school system. 10%. And that's because school only starts when kids are at age 5, at least public school. Then it's only in session about half of all calendar days each year because there's summer break, winter break, spring break, and weekends. And then even on the days when it's in session, it's only about a third of the day. The other 90% of time that kids have available to them, we throw that onto the backs of parents and families. And we say, good luck, take care of this problem. Find an early childhood learning opportunity for your kid. Find summer school for your kid. Find after school extracurricular tutoring and, and sports and arts and engineering programs for your kids. Find college counseling, find mental health care. We, we ask parents to do all of that. And government could be doing a lot more to make a lot more of those opportunities available to everybody and not just upper middle class and rich families. So to your point, about 30 years ago, President George W. Bush, you know, started No Child Left Behind. Yeah. And, and my wife is sixth grade math teacher in a private school in Long Island. I remember a couple of years ago, she was telling me about a program and she just happened to mention that this, you know, was something that was started many years ago by the No Child Left Behind Act. Mm. So can you talk to that? I mean, is, is that kind of the genesis or could that be traced back to the genesis of what you're talking about, what President Bush did back then? I, no, I don't think so. No Child okay. Left Behind was a really, I, I really um, admire the, um, the goals of that program, which was to make sure um, families had access to good schools, uh, but that program was not pouring more resources into that, our child skill development system. 
it was trying to use incentives to, in, you know, avoid um, low performance and reward high performance. But in the book, I talk about how it's very strange. Our country asks parents to handle almost the entire skill development burden until their kids are age five. You know, when kids are born, parents have to start finding childcare or nannies and uh, to, to help build skills in their kid. Or most people can't afford to do that themselves. And even if you can afford to do it yourself, it is a very complicated enterprise to develop a child. You can, parents can handle the love and the care and the tenderness with like, you know, masterful expertise. That's what parents are really good at. But many parents are not naturally great at the really complicated stuff about handling child psychology and using discipline that is like striking the right balance and reading and math and and perseverance that all that stuff is complicated man you know financial advising is complicated and aviation is complicated and child development is also really complicated and um we let parents handle that huge burden until age five and then we throw these kids into the public education system and of course the kids who had no opportunity during those first five years are going to struggle and i think it's unfortunate that no Child Left Behind kind of said, okay, well now schools, it's your fault. You know, just start working miracles on these kids. And we're, we're, gonna, we're not gonna give you tons more money to give these kids the extracurricular after school summer opportunities that they're lacking. We're just gonna kind of threaten you, teachers and principals, if you don't work a miracle and, and make up for the massive opportunity gaps that characterize every other part of lower income kids' lives. So it's, it's really what I'm advocating for in the book is not just about changing incentives and hoping people work miracles. It's about making large new public investments in our child development system so that lower income families can access high quality early education, can access great summer programs and after school programs, can access great college counseling and preparation and mental health care programs, all this stuff that middle, middle income and higher income families can access more readily. Nate, I, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but the, the Langone Foundation um, here in New York, and I believe the Stanley Drunken Miller Foundation does the same thing where they basically take a child from pre-K and custody them, walk them through a kindergarten and, and uh, uh, elementary school and literally give them all the resources and support and help them right through to when they graduate college. They've had a tremendous amount of success in mm. doing the graduation, the graduation rate is just insanely high because they literally kind of hold their child's hand from almost the day they're born to the day they graduate uh, high, uh, 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 university. Yeah. Um, but they both men will tell you they've had insane amount of uh, institutional bias against their programs, right? Where... Mm -hmm seems like there's a whether it's politics whether it's the unions they don't want these charitable foundations involved in educating the kids even though they've been incre incredibly successful it sounds to me like you're proposing uh, uh on a federal level a program that helps all kids not just what these charitable foundations help that's right yeah charity this is an expensive program and it's like if we ask charity to handle health care for senior citizens we wouldn't get anything like Medicare. We'd get little patches of generosity sparkled throughout the country, you know? Most people wouldn't get access to top tier medical services in their old age. And that's the situation we're in right now with children's, you know, skill development. 
uh, charities and philanthropies, they can't, they can't do it. It's too large a problem for the private sector to solve through charity or generosity. It's got to be a big ticket public investment legislation. So to your point, I'm yeah, sorry, go ahead, Dom. No, go ahead. No, no, because I was going to ask the obvious question. How do we do that? Right. Yeah, I think we got to We got to change how people think about child development. So I think we need a we need a cultural shift and we need a political shift. The cultural shift is to help people realize that child skill development is not like a natural instinctual thing that any parent who just cares a little bit about their kid and who loves their kid can do really well, you know, with a little little elbow grease. We have to start helping people understand that child development is a complicated professional kind of activity and you get a lot better at it with training and experience and practice that most parents do not have the time to 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 do themselves you know like in the book i talk about how if you want to fly from los angeles to um to seattle you you don't learn how to fly an airplane and do it yourself you hire a professional pilot and that's because we accept that flying planes is hard and complicated. Many people hire financial advisors such as yourselves because they, they accept that they're not gonna be able to craft a good investment strategy that meets all their personal goals without a little help from people who have training and experience and have really thought about the trade-offs. And we need a cultural shift that builds in this kind of respect for raising children and helping them build their skill portfolio. So that's the cultural shift that I really think we need to move to. And I think it's coming out of the legacy of um, the women's rights movement and how we used to think women were in charge of building, of, of raising kids and therefore raising kids had to be this simple, instinctual, unimpressive kind of activity. Now we're realizing that women and men are equal in terms of their capacities and potentials. And um, I think it's opening up new possibilities for how we view childcare. Um, so that's the cultural shift. The political shift is that kids need more effing political power. Um, you know, earlier, Michael, you were talking about how all these industry groups have a lot of political power. One of the biggest examples of that is the American Association of Retired People, which enshrines the sanctity of Social Security and Medicare, the main government programs that serve their 40 million members across all political, both political parties. Kids do not have anything like the American Association of Retired People. And to make matters even worse, kids cannot vote. They're the largest disenfranchised minority in our, in our country. And I'm not advocating, you know, six-year-olds should be voting. That's absurd. But we need to get more political power in the hands of kids. It could be through an organization like the AARP. And I, I talk about in the book how I think there's a huge arbitrage opportunity there for activists to create a nonpartisan, very disciplined mass membership organization modeled on the AARP to represent the interests of children nationally. I also think there's an, you know, there are other approaches to the problem. There's an interesting group in California called Children Now, which helps the fragmented child advocacy ecosystem come together and speak with one unified voice. That's another approach about consolidating political power. Um, but I think that's what has to change. We need to get to a place where politicians are more afraid not to represent the interests of children and parents. So, that, so and, and, that, and that's the way I think to get to a program like Family Care, where we make these big new public investments in kids. But don't we also have to kind of break the cycle of how public schools, especially in the suburbs, are are basically funded? 
So um, if you look on Long Island where Dominic and I live, yeah, if you're in a a high property tax county, whether it's Great Neck or Jericho or Southampton or Syosset, New York, inevitably they always have the best school districts. Yeah. Right? But and 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 the local newspaper here is always putting those lists together. And and inevitably the neighborhoods or the or the areas where it's lower income, lower taxes, they never show up in the top whatever of these yeah. lists. Right. So so don't we somehow, Nate, have to break the cycle of how public schools are getting their money in the dispro disproportionate way, you know, these schools are are being funded? So I'm going to tell you some surprising facts here. Okay. Michael. Um, there is not a large, on average in America, there is not a large K-12 education spending gap between rich kids and poor kids. Really? Yes. Nate, I'm, gl I'm glad you brought that up. That That is one of the most misunderstood, misnomers, uh, numbers on the entire planet, the amount of money that gets spent and the funding source is different. You are correct, Mike. The resources come from a different pipeline, but you have a lot of um, districts that theoretically are in poor neighborhoods or not as affluent neighborhoods, but the cost per child number is insanely high. Mm -hmm. So Nate, I hate, again, the loaded question, what's going on there? If they're getting the same amount or even we'll say in the ballpark, the same amount of money as the neighbor, as the school district next door, why yeah. are they not attracting, and I call it talent, whether it's the teachers, the administration, why are they, why are they not building the kind of support system that they should? Yeah, this is a whole can of worms here. You guys, I, I, I hope you get a chance to read the book in more detail and because I talk about this a lot. Um, the fund, you're, you're right, Michael, that the local funding gaps are, are large because of the property tax base. But state funding and federal funding sources have gotten a lot bigger over the last half century and have largely closed these gaps on average. Um, today in America, schools that serve predominantly poor kids have similar per student resources as schools that spend predominantly non-poor kids. Um, it wasn't always that way. You know, in the early 20th century, there really were these kinds of egregious funding gaps across rich and poor schools, but today it's not so much. So why are poor kids attending schools that seem to have low performance compared to rich kids if the funding gap isn't really there? It's because of the massive opportunity gaps that remain outside of school. That is why Schools that serve predominantly poor kids, on average, have no prayer at competing with schools that serve predominantly rich kids. Because think about what these poor, these schools that serve predominantly poor kids, what are they, what are they getting here? They're getting kids who have had to attend way lower quality early childhood education programs when they first set foot in the building in kindergarten. You know, these kids have been cared for by neighbors or aunts and uncles or grandparents, um, or they've attended, you know, informal childcare settings with really high, with, with really large classes, you know, like 10 or 12 kids per teacher, the teachers aren't as trained and experienced. Then after that, when the kids get to school, the school serving poor kids, their parents are not as empowered to tutor them. Their parents don't have the college degrees. Their parents don't have the management experience. They're not able to help them with their, their homework as easily 
They're not able to help them edit their essays. They're not able to help them coach their kids into getting more help and resources from their teachers and counselors at school because their, their parents haven't had the opportunity to develop their skills, those skills themselves. Their parents are also not able to provide the kinds of extracurricular activities and summer activities that the higher income kids are getting. So that is why. And Nate, we won't even talk about access to computers and Wi-Fi and literature and. Yeah. I mean, all the stuff that really got highlighted during COVID when kids are at home and some kids have a private bedroom with a desk and a library and a MacBook Air and Microsoft you know, sweet tools and their parent comes in and coaches them once an hour with their, you know, all the knowledge that their parents have from their college degrees. And um, other kids are sharing a room in a noisy apartment without good air conditioning or heat and don't have good Wi-Fi. I mean, I mentioned and earlier- a parent that maybe has to leave them alone to go get it to go work. Yeah, the parent's busy trying to pay the bills. It's all this stuff I'm talking about. Actually, the title of the book, The Parent Trap, it's about how hard it is to talk about this reality that some parents are much better able to build skills in their kids than others because it's very threatening to a lot of people. It's very inflammatory. And I'm trying to push against that with the book by saying, hey, all parents are really good at caring for their kids on average. You know, they're really good at that tenderness, that love, that advocacy. But there's this other side of parenting, the child skill development side, not a level playing field. And that's okay. That's not a statement of judgment. It's just a statement of fact. Um, and uh, yeah, so that is why schools that serve predominantly lower income kids are kind of predestined to have lower test scores and more behavioral problems because the kids who are sitting in those seats at those schools are having radically weaker opportunities outside of school that teachers and principals are not equipped to, to handle. And that's why it's harder for those schools to retain and recruit the best teachers as well, because what if you're a teacher and you go to a school that serves lower income kids, you get equal pay, but what do you have to do in your job for that equal pay? You have to do a lot more stuff. You have to handle kids who are not getting the same kinds of support at home as the, your, your peers serving higher income kids. So we, 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 we discussed talking about um, the, the artificial intelligence boom. And yeah. There was a statistic out to Dominic and I before the show started, which was stunning. So could you repeat those numbers? How much money has been spent is going to be spent on AI in the next two years between how much money we actually spend on actual human intelligence? Yeah. So one of the things I talk about in the book is how all industries spend about one to 3% of their revenue on R&D, research and development, to innovate over time, to have better ideas. Child development as an industry is actually our nation's biggest industry. It's bigger than healthcare and transportation and manufacturing. It's $5 trillion a year if you count it up properly. And it spends almost 0% of that on R&D. You know, the biggest source of R&D is the um, Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. It spends a few billion dollars a year, a couple billion dollars a year on R&D. Um, we're spending nothing to understand how to make human intelligence more available readily in our country. By 2025, you know, a federal report recently concluded that private companies in America would be spending about $100 billion a year on R&D into artificial intelligence. That's 25 times more than we're spending annually on research on human intelligence. And yeah, to, I'm glad you found that statistic striking. I did too. I think we're just missing a massive opportunity 
by not investing in research on child development at a much larger scale. So I, 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 my brain's going, look, there's an opportunity here for artificial intelligence to help us with this problem, right? Where we can take some of these ideas and help from day one, child development and education and sophistication with their, with how they learn. Um, but now there's also this cry that it actually might be a hindrance and it might eat the human species alive. Uh, <laughs> we're, 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 we're a long way from dealing with it as an issue, but um, there is an opportunity here for artificial intelligence to help with these issues, these problems. A little bit, yeah, it's true. Um, I've played, ha have you guys played with the Khan Academy uh, free chat GPT based tutor yet? No. no. I was alluding should, to that kind of, of tool. Yeah, you should, you should check that out. You should ask it some hard questions about personal finance and investment and kind of walk through it. You, you'll, I think you'll get a kick out of it. It's really interesting. Um, the problem is that so far in education, all of these fancy tech tools have really um, not leveled the playing. They haven't done a major thing to level the playing field. They, they often require kids to bring their own motivation and curiosity and engagement to the table to drive these experiences. And that really requires the human touch. That's where parents with, with a lot of um, advanced skills and experience with education can really coach their kids through learning experiences and other parents are gonna struggle. So I'm not too optimistic. I'm much more optimistic that a serious federal effort such as what I call family care to really um, increase funding available for professional teachers and tutors and counselors and coaches. I'm much more optimistic that that investment in human services is going to level the playing field more than like these new intelligent bots that can kind of an ask answer questions on the fly for those kids who choose to be proactive about their own learning in their free time. And Nate, we're we're just about out of time. So why don't you spend a few minutes and tell our listeners and our viewers how do we get your book and do you have a website and if they want to follow up on getting more information, how would they do that? Yeah, my book is available all at all major book retailers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, MIT Press, Penguin Random House websites, really anywhere. It's it's um I'm fortunate to have a great publisher, MIT Press, that works with Penguin Random House. So it's not hard to find the book. Um you can find my website at nate, natehilger.com and um, you can find links to the book there. You can find me on Twitter at Nate G. Hilger. That's my handle. Um, and you can, my email is on my, my website. So please reach out to me if you want to learn more about the book or um, have a good audience for me to share the message of the book. I'm, I'm obviously very passionate about the arguments in the book and I really want to um, help as many people as possible engage with them however I can. Nate, it's a great topic. It, it, you, you, brought, you brought a lot of things to think about. But before I let you go, I know you went to Harvard. I know you went to Stanford. Yeah. You're wearing an Oakland A's hat. Yeah. And, and, and the Oakland A's have a possibility of breaking mine and Dom's New York Mets record of being the worst baseball team ever. <laughs> so we're rooting for you, Nate. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank you. I am I am rooting for you, Nate. Uh, I think our children and grandchildren deserve it. Um, I think 
hope to God it's the one commonality between all the political parties that does take a priority. And maybe it's wishful thinking on all our part, but our kids deserve it. So uh, hope some of the, your ideas come into reality. Thanks Thank very you. much, man. I appreciate you guys' time. It's a great book. Thank you for writing it. And um, thank you for coming on the show. And Dominic and I will be right back after a quick break. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. When you're thinking about where to park your cash, for over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who doesn't love paying less taxes? Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing. But I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom. But the beauty of the fund is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend. It's the potential for more income. Mm -mm. Less taxes. More income. Less taxes. More income. Less For taxes. your cash, more ask your advisor mm -hmm. about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Less taxes. Or find out more at dcmadvisors.com. Well, Dom, one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn. It's what you keep. Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Symbol L-E-T-A-X. Letax. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you have any questions or comments, please send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to The Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartsman, back with uh, my partner, Dominic Tavella, for a quick wrap-up. Listen, you know, I admire Nate Hilger writing the book. I, I think his his goals, his views, his visions are admirable. But, man, Dom, that's a, that's a, that's a big lift. 
it's it's a, a politically um, a huge hot potato, right? A huge hot potato. There are many interests, self interests, and you know they they will argue that they're putting the children first, but others would argue they're not. Maybe they're putting their own self interest first, but I don't think I'm being dramatic, Mike, when I say our kids deserve it, our grandkids deserve it. And if you really, really want to solve the issues of equality and race and religion in this country, put them in a classroom, educate the heck out of them. I don't care what your religion or color or sex is, who cares? Educate them, bring them up together, and they'll grow up all to be best friends. I know there's a little bit kumbaya in that statement, but, you know, it does work, Mike. It does work. It's been proven. It does. Look, again, we, you know, we don't want to make this a political show where we get too preachy, but, you know, children children are not born with, with prejudice, right? It's it's learned and it's ingrained. And, and, the, and I guess this is where the arguments get in and what is learned and who's the person teaching it and, you know, but put the kids' interests first and we will all, as a country, as a people, We'll be better off for it, and we can talk about the economic implications of it. And uh, there's it, just so many positives can come out of it. And I know it doesn't get solved all in one day, Mike, but maybe we can start. You know, I think Nate's book. Maybe we can start. You know, and, and look, it was interesting because you know when I was talking about where we are on Long Island and how the property taxes are so different. You know, I did forget that the lower. Um, lower property tax counties and areas do get money. And I forgot, you're right, that that basically on dollar for dollar basis, as much money could be spent in one area as to the other, but there's all the other stuff that goes along with being in a lower income area. And these are all just very, very difficult, very complicated problems to solve. And maybe it doesn't always revolve around money. You know, uh, look, and, you know, many people talk about the typical child and what we spend on a textbook or a teacher or a classroom. But we have to remember that that child ends up having at some point leave and go home. And what's the environment there? Is it a learning environment? Uh, do you have parents that need to go work and there's they come home to an empty home? Um, you know, there's a lot of factors here and, and the politics and the politics just cloud anything that even if it starts out being a good for the child uh, effort, it maybe doesn't in the end of the day and end up being that way or as beneficial as it should be. Yeah, and and look, you, we, we both have, all our children are grown and out of the school districts. We both are grandparents now. And and you're, I think you mentioned it, you know, on the show, not on the break. You know, parents now are far more empowered. They have a... They have a, a much louder voice. You know, I think in their own mind, they're making decisions based, you know, whether it's what book to read or what, what movies they're allowed to watch. They think it's in their child's best interest. But, you know, I don't know if they're right or wrong, right? Yeah, Mike, I, I don't, uh, you know, this is obviously the potential of a political firestorm. But so I'm not here to, to argue one way or the other. But parents are now much more aggressively stepping off and going, wait a minute, I want to be involved in what you're teaching my children, what books my children get to read, what books are even in the school library, right? 
Um, and I, I appreciate that from the side that, hey, these are my kids and I, I want to understand what it is you're teaching them. But again, the politics and religion get into that muddle. And I don't know that it's always the solution is one way or the other. You know, I'm not saying one way or the other, but that the solution ends up being what, again, is in the children's best interest. But the other part of it is, and then I guess we have to stop this conversation for another day. You know, when I was a kid, if this, if 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 the, if my or my brother's teacher called my house, it was a long night for either my brother and I, right? Right. No matter what story I was going to tell, my brother or myself were in for a very long evening. That tide's changed also. Now, if a teacher calls a parent about a child, the first reaction frequently is, well, you did something wrong to cause my child to act this way. It, there's certainly uh, those instances out there, Mike. It happens where the parent now becomes an adversary to the teachers that are partner in in getting the child uh, as well-educated as possible, right? As, mm -hmm. as um, set up as possible to succeed. Um, we, but we both brought, were brought up in a very disciplined household. We both were brought up in a household where education was paramount. And we both were brought up in an environment where education was seen as the key to success. And we've talked about this, Mike. We didn't grow, neither one of us grew up in a very wealthy household or uh, or, or in a very prosperous household. But there was always food on the table for both of us. But education was seen as the key to success and, and to a better future, right? And I don't know. I don't know if that's as paramount today in a lot of households. Yeah, I hear you. Listen, we I I, I wanna always want to end the note, show on a positive note. So just to recap what we actually do for a living, um we we both are getting a little bullish, getting a little excited and think we might actually have a little bit of a rally here towards the end of the it were well into the summer for sure and and we'll see what happens after that and and mike uh, just in the closing 30 seconds for what we do for a living so we still encourage parents to make sure they put money aside in custodial accounts and 529 plans we still encourage the grandparents hey you want to make a gift to the your grandchild put some money away for their education we think those are really good long-term tools to helping that child ultimately succeed and you and I are doing this for over 30 plus years. Uh, I think that's proven to be a pretty, pretty good strategy. So on that note, congratulations to you and Patty and Lisa and her husband on the new addition to your family, Dominic. We have another one on our team, uh, Mike, and, and uh, grateful for that and hoping for more being a typical grandparent. So thank you for the kind words, Mike, and uh, uh, looking forward to next week's show. All right, everyone. We'll see everyone down the road. We're out of time and have a good night, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic and Michael will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week.